David R. Montgomery teaches at the University of Washington, where he studies the evolution of topography and how geological processes shape landscapes and influence ecological systems. He loved maps as a kid and now writes about the relationship of people to their environment and regenerative agriculture. In 2008, he was named a MacArthur Fellow. He is the author of award-winning popular science books, King of Fish, Dirt, and Growing a Revolution and co-authored The Hidden Half of Nature and What Food You Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health with his wife, biologist Anne Bickle. David Montgomery, welcome to the One Planet Podcast. Well, Mia, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're going to read to us a passage just to give listeners a taste of your book, What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. Yeah, I can give you a taste of it, if you'll pardon the pun. Most of us don't think about soil when we sit down for a meal with friends or family. But we should. We all know that a fresh pear is healthier than a pile of salty potato chips, but it's all too easy to lose sight of another dimension to our health. What's in that pear and how it got there, how we grow our food. In a world awash in clickbait headlines about what to eat and what to avoid, few know that the typical grocery store carrot now contains less zinc than those our great grandmothers served as kids, or that the beef sizzling on the barbecue probably packs a lot less iron than what our grandparents ate as children. Reports of troubling nutrient declines span the human diet, from fruits and vegetables to grains, meats, and dairy. And while we mostly hear in arguments over the future of agriculture centers on differences between organic and conventional farming, the real story is not that simple and far more interesting. Over the past century, farming practices have changed food in ways that reduced levels of beneficial compounds in our diet, ranging from those in fruits and vegetables that help prevent cancer, to fats in meat and dairy that modulate inflammation. Too many of us have never heard of fats that are good for us or know that our health suffers when we don't get enough plant-made phytochemicals in our diet. Yet when it comes to lifelong health, an adequate supply of such compounds appears as fundamental as getting enough exercise. There's no shortage of opinions about what we should eat. People argue endlessly, for example, over whether we should eat less meat, more meat, no meat, or meat that isn't meat. What's typically missing from the framing of dietary choices is how we grow what we eat. The way we raise our crops and livestock proves as important as what we choose to eat. We're still learning how soil life helps plants grow and influences the things that end up in their bodies and thus in our bodies. What role does better soil play in growing a better peach or carrot? If we want the healthiest food, is organic farming good enough? To answer such questions, we need to examine the long-running relationships that all plants develop with a vast menagerie of soil life. You may have heard about the importance of our microbiome, particularly the gut microbiota that dwell in our colon and transform what lands there into compounds that benefit our health. Similarly, the tiniest soil dwellers influence crop health. And what's true in the human body holds true for soil too. Routinely killing off or disrupting microbial partnerships rarely benefits the host. Soil's the starting point for foods that come from the land and a groundswell of evidence, observations, and research points to an underappreciated factor contributing to food quality the health of the soil on farms and ranches. As we'll share in the pages ahead, a substantial body of evidence shows that the state of the land influences the health of crops for better and worse. And the nutritional quality of the pasture crops or rangeland that livestock eat strongly influences their health. But does soil health affect human health as well? How much does what your food ate matter to your health? Like beads on a string, we can connect the way farmers treat their soil, grow crops, and feed their livestock to what fills our plates, glasses, and bodies. How we treat the land affects how it, in turn, treats us. Key pillars of today's conventional agriculture, routinely plowing and liberal use of chemical fertilizers to grow relatively few high-yielding crops, helped drive the twin problems of degraded soil health and declining nutrients in food. 
Over the past century, our food lost mineral elements we need in trace amounts, like copper and zinc, and others we need a lot more of, like calcium and magnesium. Today, you'd have to eat several apples a day to keep that proverbial doctor away. You spoke there about soil being the starting point. So just to go to your starting point from the beginning and through your books, Dirt, The Hidden Half of Nature, Growing a Revolution, your work really shines a light on the foundational nature of soil and how essential it is for all life. So initially, what drew you to soil? And if you could just walk us through your journey of writing those books. I'd be happy to do that because it's been an interesting journey for me because I was trained by a geologist. So when I first started thinking about soil, it was through the lens of what happens when you break rocks up when rocks rot. And I'm the kind of geologist who studies landscape evolution, what shapes the form of topography. And as part of that, you need to understand how erosion works because that's what shapes the land. And so I studied natural erosion processes for decades in my day job, teaching geomorphology at the University of Washington. And I started getting into writing books for non-academic audiences that had scientific themes, but that were not overly technical. The second book wrote when I started in that aspect of my career, was called Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations. And it's the kind of book you might expect a geologist to write about soil. It looks at how soil erosion affected societies in the past. And what I realized as I got into that book, writing about the most recent era of geologic time, the one we live in, was that I was writing a history of farming, not so much a history of soil erosion. Because when you look into the evidence in archaeology and the state of the land today, the state of the soils around the world today, you realize that the way that people have farmed over centuries and millennia have degraded at this point about a third of the world's potentially farmable land. And that's at a time when our population is getting large enough that we're worried about the potential to feed everybody. And so I really started looking into how was it that human actions and in particular how we farm degraded land. And that then led to the question of, well, can you turn it around? Can you reverse it? Can you restore the damage? Or are we on a one-way trip, a downward spiral? And when I really started to turn into an optimist on this issue, that we could actually reframe the problem of soil erosion into one of soil restoration, came when my wife, Ann Baclay, and I bought a house in Seattle after I got tenure at the University of Washington. And she's a biologist and a major league gardener. I think she's a plant whisperer. She can bring plants back from the edge of death, coax them robust blooms. And when you think about what makes healthy, fertile soil, that marriage of geology and biology is essentially it. The, the mineral matter, the stuff that I'd studied, and then the role of soil life, the kind of biology is a little finer scale than Anne is, was normally accustomed to working on. She was trained in natural history and the biology of the animals and organisms we can see with our senses. As she started her gardening efforts in our yard, we noticed over the course of a few years that the crappy soil that we started with when we cleaned a lawn off to start making a garden was actually getting much better. It was getting darker. Carbon was getting back into it. We noticed life forms emerging in the sequence that mirrored the evolution of life on earth over geologic time. And the secret was essentially restoring organic matter to the soil, composting and mulching and the gardening activities that Anne was doing. So we wrote a book called The Hidden Half of Nature, the second in the series that you mentioned, that described our experience restoring our own little piece of the world, our own backyard. And how that led to us learning about the role of soil life and microbial life in particular, bacteria and fungi in the soil, in supporting and potentially building and rebuilding soil fertility. And we had, over the course of about 10 years of her intensive composting and mulching, regenerative gardening, she took our soil from about 1% organic matter, which is really low, 
to almost 10% in our yard and literally stashing tons of carbon pulled from the atmosphere into the soil in our yard. And we started asking questions about, well, okay, if we could do this in a small yard in urban Seattle, could you do it on farms around the world? And that led to writing Growing a Revolution, which I took some time from my day job and traveled around the world to visit farmers who had done to their farms what Ann did to our yard. They restored the fertility of their land. And I was amazed at their successes. They virtually weaned themselves off of agrochemicals. They had used far less diesel and they were, the biodiversity on their farms was incredible and their yields were comparable to their conventional neighbors. The secret, they'd restored their land. They'd restored the health of their soil. And how did they do it? Well, it turned out that they followed a set of principles that were pretty parallel to the principles and followed in restoring the soil in our yard. And the light bulb started to click on at this point in terms of, wow, maybe there's some universally generalizable principles at play here in terms of minimizing disturbance of the soil, um, keeping the land covered with living plants, growing cover crops between cash crops. And so, so not plowing, growing cover crops, and then also growing a diversity of crops, not just growing one or two things as a specialty, but growing a great diversity of plants. When you look at natural ecosystems, you don't tend to find monocultures. So if you look at how nature builds fertile soils, if farmers adopt practices that aren't natural, but that follow the same principles, they can actually bring their land back to life quite literally in incredibly short order, at least the way a geologist thinks about things. And so that led to growing a revolution. And after I finished writing Growing a Revolution, Anne and I were realizing that the piece that we hadn't really looked at yet in this inadvertent series of books looking at how important soils are for human societies was what healthy soil might mean for our collective health, the health of societies, but also our individual health. And that led to What Your Food Ate that looks at connecting the dots between soil health, plant health, animal health, and human health. So we dive into that literature and did some testing ourselves where we tested produce from regenerative and conventional farms and compared them. And the short answer is, is that it looks like modern farming practices have reduced the amount of three key things in the human diet. Mineral micronutrients, which are important, these things like copper and zinc that are important for our immune system, but that we don't really need to grow and survive but they're very handy if we want to stay healthy. And then also phytochemicals, plant-made compounds that we might know as more like antioxidants or anti-inflammatories, things that have medicinal effects in our bodies, but that plants make for their own purposes as sunscreens or to repel insect herbivores. And they're not building these compounds because they benefit our health, but we've evolved in eating those compounds in ways where they bolster and benefit our health. And then also the way that we raise livestock influences the mix of fats in our meat and dairy products, particularly the amount of omega-3 fats that help to quell or reduce inflammation and the amount of omega-6 fats that help to initiate or start inflammation. And by feeding our livestock on a grain-based diet, grains are rich in omega-6 fats, our meat and dairy products have become very much enriched in these pro-inflammatory fats, whereas pasture-raised or animals that graze on living plants the photosynthetic parts in particular are rich in omega-3 fats. So this is where we started looking into the history of past societies. And we ended up writing about looking forward in terms of the way that we farm matters to not just the health of our own societies over centuries to millennia, but to our individual health in terms of what's actually in what we eat. So that's the backstory behind what your food ate. And I should give a shout out here to my co-author and wife, Anne Buclay. She wrote The Hidden Half of Nature and What Your Food Ate with me. And there is no way on earth I would have written 
those books without her input and help on it. They're true collaborations. The number of insights that she brought to the table, I completely lost track of halfway through and we literally argued over every word in both books. Truly together as a partnership, you are this ecosystem and you complement each other's knowledge. Just really help us understand what we're losing when we talk about soil degradation. There's that statistic that you shared, which is 0.3% of our global food production capacity diminishes each year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but over time, that's going to be a huge amount of soil that's infertile. Yeah, what you're referring to is the UN's 2015 estimate that we're losing about 0.3% of our global food production capacity each and every year to ongoing soil loss and degradation. And on an individual year, that's hard to notice, 0.3%. But if you run it out over 100 years, that becomes 30%. That's where a perspective that I bring to this issue as a geologist is one in which I look at 100 years and go, that's just like a down payment on the future. That's hardly any time at all in terms of geologic time. In terms of politics, that's like infinite and forever. <laughs> but that problem of a long, slow-going decline in something that we critically depend on is something that is both incredibly important and really a slow-motion crisis, but it can be very difficult for people to get motivated about addressing on a day-to-day -day basis because it is that slow. But when you look back at the history of land degradation around the world and realize we've already degraded a third of the world's cropland and we're on track to degrade another third this century, it all of a sudden, the red lights, sort of the yellow lights, certainly, maybe the red lights start blinking in terms of, wow, this is a serious global crisis that threatens the collective future of humanity in terms of not as to whether we'll go extinct or whether the civilization will collapse, but what the character of it will be, how many people will be able to support at what kind of a lifestyle and fashion and style. And that's something that I think everybody should be really worried about. But I've become an optimist that we could turn it around through researching and writing this series of books. But for us to do that, we have to change how we farm. We should probably think about the nature of what we eat and reshaping our diets as well. But when you dig into the medical literature, seven out of 10 of the leading causes of death in the United States are diet-related chronic diseases. And so one of the hopeful messages that I think comes out of the hidden half growing revolution and what's your food ate is that what we do to the land, essentially we do to us and what's good for the land is good for us. So if we think about farming differently, we can actually enjoy ripple effects that are not only beneficial to the farmers in terms of reduced costs for fertilizer and pesticide and diesel, the three of the big costs in farming today, particularly with what's happened in fertilizer prices in the last year with the war in Ukraine. If we can farm and grow as much food using less of those kind of synthetic inputs, we'll all be better off and farmers will be better off and more profitable. But it could also translate into better human health outcomes at a population level. It's hard to draw those parallels on an individual level in a forecastable way because there's so much that affects our health, not just how we grow our food, but what we eat, our genes, whether we get any exercise, all that kind of stuff matters a lot. But you integrate that across a population and over centuries, and one of the smartest ways we could adopt to reduce our collective health care costs and to improve our collective health is to rethink what we eat and how we grow it. The health issue is also something that is personal for Anne as well, because she had her own health issues. Yes, when we were halfway through writing The Hidden Half of Nature, Anne was diagnosed with cancer, 
and it greatly impacted how we wrote that book and looked at that book and looked at the human health angle of things. And coming out of doing that research and reshaping our lifestyle and diet to try and bolster our immune systems as much as we could really had a big impact in our thinking about these issues. And particularly in terms of the role of diet in either promoting inflammation, which is at the root of many forms of cancer and many forms of chronic disease, but also in terms of how diet can be used as a tool to quell or reduce inflammation and to bolster our immune system and to help us fight can things like cancer. Ended up having surgery and is well post that, healthy, happy, has recovered from that, but it, it really impacted the way we think about it and made a very personal angle to the kind of research that we've been working on in this area. And in terms of helping us really understand, because we have this imbalance, as you said, between the input into our diets that is omega-3 and omega-6, what's it, 20 to 30 times the amount of omega-6 that we have in our diet as opposed to omega-3? Yeah. If you look at the ancestral human diet, there was anywhere between one to one and four to one omega-6s to omega-3s. And the reason the ratio, both the amount and the ratio of those two fats matters is that they're both essential fats. Our bodies can't make them. Our only source is what we eat. So what we eat is what we get, what our bodies have to work with. And those fats end up getting us stored in the cell walls of our bodies. And when our immune system or our body needs those particular fats, and they're involved in all kinds of reactions, it'll pull them out of our cell walls. So what we eat becomes the building blocks of our cells. And then that is the stockpile that our body has to draw on in terms of fats. And omega-6 fats tend to help initiate inflammation. They're key fats in the initiation of inflammation. And omega-3 fats are key fats in the turning inflammation off. And 100 years ago, we didn't really know how inflammation worked. Now we know that those two kinds of fats share many biochemical pathways in our bodies. So if our cell walls are full of omega-6 fats, they swamp the omega-3s in terms of their availability because they share all these chemical pathways. But they do different things. And so the ancestral human diet had one to one to four to one ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s. It was very different than the modern Western diet, which is more like 10 to 20 to 30 to one in terms of omega-6s to omega-3s. In other words, relative to the amount of omega-3s in our diets, the omega-6s have gone through the roof. And why is that? Because seeds are very rich in omega-6s, whereas vegetables, leafy greens, animals that have grazed off of living pastures, they're all rich in omega-3s. So if we're eating a lot of processed foods that are grain-derived, then we're getting a lot of omega-6s. And if our livestock, from which we're getting our meat and dairy, are raised on a diet of grains, we're getting a lot of omega-6s. So the human diet has changed a lot in the last 100 years in terms of those two kinds of fats. And that's not the only thing that's affected our health or the only thing that agriculture has changed, but it's an underappreciated key piece of the puzzle, I think, in terms of why inflammation-rooted diseases, chronic diseases, have gone through the roof in the last 50 years. Well, up until the most the recent and ongoing pandemic, modern medicine has gotten very good at treating infectious diseases. There's, there's diseases that our grandparents feared that we only know as names in history. You don't really recognize things like smallpox and polio, diseases that were scourges in the world not all that long ago. What really affects our health today are these chronic diseases. And seven out of 10 of the leading killers in the U.S. are chronic diseases rooted in diet. And the idea that what we eat is important to our health is really not a mystery. We all know that. But the degree to which how we raise what we eat influences those key things that help bolster our immune system is much less recognized. And I think it deserves a lot more attention, which is partly why we wrote the book. 
I know that there are others on the other side of it thinking because the reason for the transformation in farming was because people feared famine with justifiable reasons. I've visited small farms who are doing a regenerative agriculture and have transformed their soil, but I haven't seen it on scale. So how does that really work on scale and how do you bring together the science and knowledge that we know now with that ancient wisdom? That's a really good question because that really is where we are today is we have the benefit of a lot of ancient wisdom of things like crop rotations and cover crops. Those aren't new ideas, right? They go back a long way and societies all around the world discovered that, oh, if you plant legumes in your crop rotation, it helps the next crop grow through the way that it increases the nitrogen in the soil. The largest regenerative farms I've been on are like 20,000 plus acres. They're huge, very mechanized farms. They're industrial farms, not small scale farms. But they've basically reshaped their operations to go to no-till farming with a minimal use of fertilizers and any agrochemicals. Some of the people at scale with many thousands of acres have even gone to using no agrochemicals because once they've actually restored their soil, they find they don't need to spend money on them. And what really turned me into an optimist on it is that across those scales, what we're seeing is that these regenerative farmers, once they've gone through the transition, which is not a terribly long transition, but that they can achieve yields that are comparable to their conventional neighbors, but they do so at a lower cost. And that's good for a whole host of reasons. But I think that the challenge that I've seen really in terms of both small and large scale farms adopting regenerative practices has been one of figuring out how to tailor those practices to the kind of crops they can grow and sell and the climate that they're in and the kind of soil that they have and the equipment and technology that they have access to. So the kind of practices that I've seen farmers in equatorial Africa use, say, on small-scale subsistence farms, follow the same principles as the farmers I've seen on large 20,000-acre farms in the Dakotas raising commodity crops. They follow similar principles, but their practices are completely different. So they're both minimizing disturbance of the soil. On a small farm in small subsistence farm in Central Africa, that's done with hand labor and hand planting. On a big farm in the Dakotas, that's done with John Deere no-till seed drills and other ad adaptations in terms of a crop rotation that helps to promote and build soil life. So the common element is really investing in cultivating the beneficial life in the soil where in the famines have plagued humanity, probably since the dawn of agriculture, since we came to depend on agriculture, if crops failed, people went hungry. And that has been a huge issue and concern over the last hundred years as our population has exploded. And so a lot of agronomic energy and research went into boosting crop yields in the 20th century. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. All right. It helped to feed the world, but there were a lot of unintended side effects in terms of degradation of soil health and soil fertility that in hindsight, we're realizing now that I think we need to correct in terms of trying to bring some ancient wisdom into bear with modern technology to rebuild healthy fertile soils as a consequence of the kind of intensive agriculture that we've followed for the last hundred years. So what Ann and I argue in What's Your Food Aid is that we've spent the last half century or so getting very good in the research world at promoting high yielding crops. Now what we need to do is focus on how to grow high yields of more nutrient-dense or nutritious crops and bring the focus away from simply feeding the world and shine a light on how to nourish the world. And speaking of new technologies or new developments, I don't know if there's a place in that for vertical farming. We do think about food miles and refrigeration and the climate. Does vertical farming create other problems? that isn't really sustainable within a regenerative agricultural model. Well, the issue of vertical farming is a very interesting one. And there's lots of, just as there's different styles of conventional farming and there's different styles of regenerative farming, there's different styles of vertical farming. 
Some of them are all hydroponic and there isn't even any soil involved. Uh, others use soil. And I think that the real opportunity for vertical farming is in urban environments and in cities where there's a dearth of fresh grown vegetables for urban populace. And the logical ways to do that is either grow it in the city or near the city. It doesn't make a ton of sense to ship stuff all the way around the world, but there's a booming business doing that now. And even doing that, a lot of it depends on when it's grown, how it's shipped. If you do the full cost accounting in terms of energy, for example, you can come up with some surprising examples. Like New Zealand's a pretty good place to raise sheep, even if you're going to be eating them in Europe and North America, as long as it's shipped in ways that are not terribly energy intensive. So the vertical farming, I think, can have a place in the farming constellation. Urban farming, I think, is something that definitely needs a lot more investment and expansion to provide urban dwellers with fresh whole foods. But I think that there's opportunities. What we don't want to lose if we move farming indoors is the relationship of plants with their symbiotic life in the soil, because that's how a lot of the mineral micronutrients get into plants and how phytochemicals get into plants. Now, to be fair, even with hydroponic farming, if you say you want more zinc in a plant, if you get zinc in a soluble form and you pour it into the water that the plant brings up, through, it'll take that zinc up. But then the question becomes, well, where do you get the zinc? How do you get it to the vertical farm? And the energetics of that are interesting. In urban environments, there's an awful lot of food waste and urban organic matter that's produced that could be a source of nutrients to recycle through urban farms. So I tend to look at urban farming not through the simple lens of vertical farming versus other kinds of farming, but through the lens of is there soil involved? Is it taking advantage of recycling urban organic matter in ways that repurpose the food that we waste. I think there's a lot of potential for it, but there's also a huge potential as we write about in, I think it's in What's Your Food? It might've been in Growing Revolution. Problem with writing a lot of books is you kind of forget what's in where, but the idea of fostering small scale vegetable farms in rings around cities, which happen to be the areas that are currently urbanizing the fastest, we're paving over some of our best farmland to build houses. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Hello, I'm Lynn. I'm actually doing an internship in the Columbia River Gorge this summer, and I'm an anthropology major. Great. Columbia River Gorge is a great place to do that. So my question is, throughout my work, I've encountered movements right now of indigenous people that are trying to reclaim their traditional food, as it's not only physically healthy, but benefits their mental health, connects them to their culture, and supports their overall well-being. And I understand that colonization played a large role in separating people from what they traditionally ate. And so I've been wondering, can you elaborate on what specific particular actions have resulted in these things like soil degradation and like paving over landscapes that would be good for farming? Yeah. One of the things that I looked a lot at in the dirt book that started me in thinking along these lines was the role of colonialism in global agriculture and how some of the methods, uh, farming methods in particular, lots of tillage in particular that were developed in Western Europe, then got exported to the tropics where they actually degrade soil really fast. And so there's two elements to that. The one is in terms of exporting technologies that were thought to be more modern and better but that actually were ill-suited to the kinds of climates and soils and landscapes that in other parts of the world. And part of that relates to, there was a study back in the journal Nature in the 1990s, I think it was, that looked at how long could you till the soil in temperate regions and in tropical regions, how long it would take to degrade the soil organic matter enough to seriously impact the ability to grow food in it. And the short answer was that in the temperate regions, where soil organic matter levels tend to be higher and where temperatures tend to be lower and there's, it would take many decades, 50 years to a hundred years, roughly a century kind of time scale to degrade the land. 
And the light went on for me when I looked back and I, oh, when in the dirt book, that's kind of the time scale in which society after society degraded their land in temperate regions. That same nature study though, documented that it would take only five years for that same technology to degrade the land in the tropics. And so we saw example after example in the 20th century of when actually in the 19th and 20th centuries of colonial agriculture, degrading land fairly fast in other parts of the world. The other aspect of that though, was also what people were choosing to grow and the idea that large colonialized farms were displacing subsistence farmers off the best land in areas where they were traditionally growing food and then raising different crops that degraded the land in ways that were then exported back to the home country of the colonists. So there are two parallel themes in terms of the technology, but then also what people did with it that had a big effect in terms of degrading land in different parts of the world, but also reshaping the diets in different parts of the world. But when you take people and displace them off of really good land onto marginal land, that affects their ability to support themselves. And that story was repeated many times all around the world. And I tell examples of some of that, I think, growing a revolution, but Dirt's the book that really focuses the most on that. And then there's the consolidation of farms and the problems with absentee ownership and corporatization of farms. The most interesting example I wrote about in Dirt on that was what happened in the Roman Empire in their heartland when they went from small family farms to large-scale monocultural plantations. Something has parallels with the Western world in the 20th century, and it didn't work out too well for the Roman heartland, and we can't afford to keep going that direction in the rest of the world either. My name is Lynn Flores, and I'm an art, literature, and anthropology podcaster for the creative process. I'm a rising junior attending Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. My major is in anthropology, which is not only a reflection of my passions and interest in the academic field, but a way of thinking that helps me better myself and inform my life. For example, making healthy choices based upon the studies of humanity and their interaction with the soil, our very earth. In today's society, we are very removed from nature, indulged in all the comforts and technology of the modern world. I grew up in the city and was surrounded by academia most of my life. I, along with many others, never really got the chance to see, experience, or really think about where the food I ate was coming from and how it affected me. But farming is quite literally where we come from. The basis of society as we know it began when people started planting seeds in the ground and going agrarian allowing for the division of labor that has led to how we currently live. We are built upon farming. The soil is literally the very foundation of our world, as the food we put in our system grows there. All roots have to start in the dirt. So, it only makes sense that if we pay attention to how we take care of our roots, we can greatly improve upon what grows from them. David Montgomery began his journey by witnessing the wonderful things his wife was able to bring to their garden. More than just a peaceful hobby, she was able to make nature thrive within our urban environment. Two different worlds we often put a false dividing line between. This introduction tells people that they can make healthy and sustainable farming practices work within their own busy personal lives. So then, the idea that bigger farms can make this transition is realized. David Montgomery details how once these farms adopt these practices, continuing them becomes easy and only benefits their longevity. It will save a lot of strife, fixing bad plants and problems on farms in the future. Much like the idea of taking steps to invest in our health now has much less consequences than managing a chronic disease down the road. David Montgomery makes his valuable information accessible to all and the practice adaptable to all kinds of farms. 
he actually outlines the steps one needs to take, a very comforting and inspiring phenomenon, as often our society is shamed into being healthier and condemned for our own personal choices with no further instruction. Instead, David Montgomery gives us the tools to tackle the issue from the roots. I hope you learned something that you can implement in your daily life. I definitely want to start a farm when I'm out of college, and now I have the confidence I need to maintain it healthily. So let's learn more together and get back to the podcast. That's so much great information. Something else I've encountered in my work here and something you've done is in King of Fish, you did a work on salmon in the Pacific Northwest. And so it was really the actions of humans, such as dams, unrestricted fishing laws that had really devastating effects on the fish. And I was wondering how this understanding of human effects on nature has helped you throughout your journey in writing your books. Yeah, that's a great question. The King of Fish was the first popular-ish book that, that I wrote, and it really came out of moving to Seattle and studying rivers in the region. And in particular, the effects of forestry practices and human modifications of the landscape on salmon production, on the health of the fisheries. What that really drove home for me was the, the way that we live on the land greatly affects things that we may not at first really connect or assume, but that played out over time have a big impact on reshaping the world. And the plight of salmon in the Northwest is a really good example of that in terms of reshaping the flows in rivers, access to rivers through dams, but also the set of the sediment that gets in them and how that works its way through the landscape. And when we think about, okay, well, how would we manage how we live on the land? That comes down to our culture and our laws and our values and our morals. And one of the interesting things in researching King of Fish I came across was I looked into what were Native American land management practices in the Northwest and fisheries management practices. And they had a fairly finely tuned, attuned uh, way of looking at how to not destroy a fishery. And when you look at, particularly on the Columbia River Gorge where your internship is, there's a, an archeologically documented almost 10,000 year history of an intensive Native American salmon fishery. Something that was sustained for 10,000 years probably passes the sustainable question. That was a sustainable fishery, and we managed to virtually destroy it in just 100 years. What was the difference? They actually recognized pieces of the salmon life cycle that were important to maintaining them. It had restrictions on how many fish you could take at what time and in what style, and, and they weren't engaged in the kind of massive habitat changes that we see in the region today. But the lesson that I took away from all that is in thinking about you know, our connection to the natural world, we need to really root how we live on the land, whether it's in our own yard, the way Ann and I were looking at our garden, or whether we look at global farmland. We need to understand how nature works and to work with nature rather than to try and work against it. And that's where the basic distinction with contemporary Western land management in the Northwest versus the Native American style of fisheries management really comes in because they were working with nature rather than against it. We've spent, I think it's like four or $5 billion trying to restore the Columbia River salmon runs in the last 20 or 30 years, and we have virtually nothing to show for it. Why? We're not working with nature. We're working at it all wrong. We're trucking fish around dams and barges, and we're doing things that we should not think will actually work because we are approaching it with the wrong framing and the wrong model. And that's when we turn back to agriculture and the health of the soil and the health of the land. If we look at how nature builds fertile soil, we don't have to do it exactly the same way, but we should follow the same principles in terms of how it works. And that would be the principles that today underpin regenerative farming. So I was thinking about this subject when I was 
reading your past research and what we're talking about perfectly leads into this. So David's so happy. He was Native American who followed his indigenous practices of catching salmon and he's punished by the government for it, but his actions led into creating more strict fishing laws on the Pacific Northwest region, especially for in Washington and in Oregon for the indigenous people because the treaties were very vague. So I was just wondering if you had anything to say, help the listeners understand some of the context about the development and the political state and our relationship to food and just some of the government mindsets that have contributed to what's happening right now. Yeah, in terms of the salmon issue, if you look back and read the original treaties that were signed, there's a whole bunch of issues in terms of duplicity and misrepresentation in the treaties. If you look at what the treaties specified, Native Americans were, in most of the treaties, were granted the right to half the fish in their usual and accustomed fishing grounds. Now, the thing that has been interesting to me in the last hundred years or so is that implicit to me in that kind of a treaty would be the promise that there'd be as many fish to catch and you can still have half of them. But the way it's been interpreted in terms of politics in state and federal governments, for the most part, has been that, no, it means half the fish. If there's now half as many fish, then you can have a quarter of what there used to be. And if there's only 10%, then you have 5%. And to me, that's an inequitable and duplicitous reading of what those treaties really should actually have promised. They should have been essentially an implicit promise to protect the ability of the landscape to produce. And so a lot of the political battles have been over that and also in the way of how people are allowed to catch salmon. And there were big battles in the 50s, 60s, and 70s over Native American fishing rights as the population of salmon in the Northwest was starting to decline and people were noticing it, and then fights erupted over who gets to actually catch them. And there's all kinds of ugly sides to that, those poli- that po- the politics and that history. But it's been interesting to watch tribes in the Northwest selectively try and bring their treaty rights into court to try and further their their ability to maintain their traditional practices, which if we all followed, we'd still have a lot more fish. It's a very interesting example in terms of the politics involved and how economics and politics can run head on into battle with what might be better for the environment and most of us in the long run over short-term greed, frankly. I would love to talk about earth law, but maybe we should go back to animal life and how soil contributes to that. Sure. Many of the regenerative farmers that have visited around the world adopt those three practices of no-till cover crops and growing a diversity of crops. But some of them also have started to reintegrate animals into their cropping practices, or they engage in regenerative grazing practices, which typically involve moving cattle around fairly frequently, which is the way that big herds like the buffalo used to move around the plains. And it turns out that in the last 80 years, we've learned an awful lot about the life in the soil that connects the dots about why that actually was a practice that worked pretty well to support large herds of buffalo and to build these incredibly rich, fertile soils of the American Midwest, which we have now degraded by roughly 50% in terms of the last 150 years of farming. But animals help build them up. I've also studied examples where overgrazing has degraded and destroyed soil fertility. Did some of my PhD research in Northern California, looking at how 19th century dairying practices created big gullies north of San Francisco. But you could also go find examples today where people are using animal husbandry, grazing, as a way to rebuild soil, to accelerate rebuilding soil fertility. The difference is, well, it's not the cows, it's how people manage them. So I've been very intrigued and interested in that because there's large portions of the world's environments 
particularly grasslands and semi-arid grasslands, where water is going to be a huge problem for using them over the long run to grow crops. But livestock, and then you look at the Western Plains, for example, where the Ogallala Aquifer is being depleted at an astonishing rate. It's just decades until it basically becomes virtually unusable. And in an area where there's not a whole lot of rainfall and a lot of the crops are grown with irrigation now, you just play that forward a few decades and it's, you start to wonder, okay, what's going to be grown in those regions? But if you look back to the last couple hundred thousand years of Earth history, those were essentially as a buffalo park, buffalo commons. It's great grazing land and cattle can do things useful to us nutritionally. They can turn cellulose, grass that we can't eat, into meat and milk that we can. And I'm not arguing for a carnivore diet or a paleo diet or anything like that. But what I am saying is that if we look at how we raise not just our crops, but our livestock and the style of how we do it, there's regions of the world where it can make a lot of sense as a key component of the human diet if we raise them right. Whereas if we don't, if we raise them the way we do now in conventional feedlots and feed them grains, we're taking something that could be an environmental asset and turning it into something that produces less nutritious food and produces a bunch of nauseous waste that could be used as fertilizer if it was distributed over lots of farms on a small scale. And on that point, because we've been on indigenous land stewardship, and really there is that theory that with the near extinction of buffaloes, that could have contributed to the Dust Bowl effect. What contributed to the Dust Bowl effect was plowing. There was something like 13 equally severe droughts in the thousands of years before the Dust Bowl that did not cause Dust Bowls. What happened in the Dust Bowl was due to the plow, full stop. There were still plenty of buffalo in the plains up until, what, the 1870s or so? But what really kicked it off was plowing the grass up. Tell us a little bit more about untilling farming techniques and just to help us really understand that a little bit more. Yeah, so first question one might ask is that if plowing is actually bad for land in the long run, why do farmers do it? And it's great weed control and weeds are not what farmers want to see growing in their fields. But the problem is that when you till the soil and you're breaking up the soil, the first imagine what it does to worms. It can cut them in half. It disturbs their burrows. You're breaking up all the little void spaces, the empty spaces. And a little known fact about soil is that typically about a quarter of it is air. It's porous. It's kind of like Swiss cheese. And those air conduits are actually really important for the movement of organisms and the movement of water and the movement of air through, through the soil. And so tilling basically powders it all up and pulverizes it. You're just disturbing the conduits. Unfortunately, tilling, well, because of that, you think about what happens to the rain that then falls on a soil that's freshly plowed. It'll crust over the surface because it's basically powdered. And then once it's crusted over, the water runs off. It doesn't sink down in the ground. What you want the water to do is to get to the roots of your crops. And so tilling is actually counterproductive for getting water into the land, even though you would think that, oh, if you break the soil up, you're going to get more water into the ground. The problem is it doesn't actually work that way. So the way that we're inclined to intuit the world working, it doesn't turn out to be the way that it actually does. And that's the kind of example of how we get into trouble in terms of thinking that we know how to manage nature in ways that we may only have partial information on. It can basically cause other problems. What tilling also does is that when you mix up the soil, you're basically exposing more surface area of the particles in it, and that can lead to greater bacterial decomposition of organic matter. And organic matter is basically dead stuff. It's basically things that were once alive that are now decaying or rotting in the soil. And that organic matter tends to be a source of good nutrients, not nitrogen to some degree, phosphorus to some degree, particularly for mineral micronutrients, because those 
organic matter, by virtue of it having once been alive, it has what it takes to support new life. And so the recycling of that material happens in the soil. And when we till, you get a burst of activity that accelerates that. And that's where that problem of decaying, decreasing soil fertility in the temperate regions versus the tropics as tilling comes in is that it breaks down organic matter faster. And tillage also disrupts the fungal networks in the soil. And turns out that those fungal networks are a key component of how mineral micronutrients get into plants, including many crops, because they serve as root extensions for the plant. And the plant actively feed their fungal partners with what are called exudates or sugar-rich compounds they exude from their roots to feed their fungal partners. Why? Because fungi can't photosynthesize, so they need a food source. They'll either consume decaying organic matter, or if they get a free handout from a plant, they will actually go out and mine things like zinc or phosphorus and trade it to the plant for a cut of those sugary exudates. It's a partnership. And all too often, we've tended to look at nature as the seat of competition, the whole nature red and tooth and claw kind of idea back from the 19th century. But the more we look into how the world really works in terms of relationships to microbial life, symbioses are a huge organizing theme of how nature really works. And the relationship between soil life and crops is a brilliant example of that. And that's the kind of stuff that Ann and I wrote about in The Hidden Half of Nature, that symbiosis has been one of the main driving forces in evolution and in life. But we've overlooked it because of the relationship between host organisms like ourselves or our crops and their microbiome, the microbes that inhabit them or their bodies or their environments are out of sight, out of mind, because we don't have the senses to be able to detect them. We didn't even know microbes existed until just a couple centuries ago. But it turns out they structure our world and they help support our health. We tend to focus on the bad actors, the pests and pathogens, and we've overlooked the benefits that our, our collaborators, our partners actually provide to us. Those are starting to come into focus and they're really motivating a pretty deep rethink of not just agricultural practices, but some approaches in the medical profession as well. You're speaking about the microbiome of both animals and ourselves. How are they related just to help us understand the microbiomes of ruminants? Yeah. So if you look at a ruminant, their rumen, their namesake organ is essentially a giant fermentation tank so that they will take in grass and it's they don't actually get nourished from the grass they get nourished from the fatty acids that their microbes in the rumen convert the grass into and so if you look at the rumen in a cow or you look at our own colon they are basically microbial transformers where things that are indigestible to the stomach of the host organism get transformed into compounds that can be taken up by the host organism. And it turns out that those microbial transformations produce a lot of compounds that are important for the health of the host organism. So in a rumen, if you basically have a cow that is fed a whole lot of grains, it leads to a condition known as acidosis. The rumen acidifies and that undermines the health of the cow. And it also undermines the fat profile in the meat and dairy that can come from the cow. In our own bodies, we can look at what our colon does in terms of our own microbiome transforming, particularly the fiber-rich foods that we eat, because those are the ones that don't get dissolved in our stomach and they make it through the small intestine. And what lands in our colon, the last stop on our digestive tract, is the stuff that was otherwise indigestible. And our microbiome will work on that. And what do they do? Well, they can metabolize those fiber-rich compounds and the phytochemicals they contain 
into other compounds, some of which have very medicinal effects in the human body, helping to quell inflammation or help support our immune system. And so it's not terribly well known piece of our nutrition is that the functions that our food can serve in us depend on not only what our food ate, but also who's living in us and what they're doing to the food that we ate. It's a much more an interesting, complex ecosystem than we're all accustomed and perhaps comfortable thinking about. But it's how the world works is that the health of the host organism, whether it's a person or a plant or a cow, is greatly influenced by their microbiome and what their microbiome, the diet of their microbiome, what they diet, what that gets to eat. And if we look at the roots of a plant, you can think about it as a plant's stomach and colon are outside of the plant. They've basically outsourced their digestive activity to the root zone and they promote the beneficial life around them by feeding them exudates. We're the other way around. Our microbiome is inside of us. And how do we promote itself? Well, what we eat and how it was raised. It's quite amazing. You spoke there before of us not really having something that you addressed in your book, body wisdom, and that we don't really know about the nutrients. But I think we do have this expression that we know it in our gut. How do we get back in touch with that so that we really understand what we're eating, what's good for us? Yeah, this concept of body wisdom that you mentioned is a really interesting one that came out of veterinary science, animal science, in looking at how does a grazing animal know what to eat? How do they stay healthy? And the research into that area has illuminated this concept of body wisdom, which if you couple it with the observation that our bodies have taste receptors throughout our bodies for various compounds like bitter taste receptors and fat receptors, and why would our kidneys and our liver need essentially taste receptors? And if you start thinking about flavor as information that is being conveyed to your body about what's in the food you're eating, the lights start to go on. You start to think, oh, okay. How would a human being 50,000 years ago know what to eat in nature? And flavor played a big role in that. If it tastes good, eat it. And it turns out that there's been studies of things like tomatoes that have looked at the kinds of tomatoes that people find most appealing and flavorful also tend to be full of essential amino acids, full of certain phytochemicals like beta carotene. You know, it's things that are actually good for us nutritionally. And so this idea of the flavor feedback hypothesis is that if you're dealing with unadulterated natural foods, so we can get to processed foods in a minute, but if you're dealing with whole natural foods, the ones that are more flavorful and taste better are probably better for you. We've all had those like horrible, dry, nasty tomatoes that you can find in supermarkets at times. And hopefully we've all had a really nice heirloom tomato that's juicy and eating go, wow, that's a tomato. It turns out that those flavors are sending signals to your body about what's in the food. Now that's been greatly disrupted in the modern world with food processing, because what do you do with food processing? You're basically taking different whole foods, dividing them into their constituent elements, and then recombining them in some way that someone thinks will sell to someone or that will last longer or ship better or whatever other purpose one has for processing that food. What that does is it breaks the link between the flavor and what's actually in the food, because what's generally added to processed foods are what are known as palatants or things to make them taste better. And they can be particular ingredients that have a flavor, but don't necessarily deliver the nutritional component that your body is interpreting would come along with that flavor. And that's perhaps why I love certain kinds of flavored potato chips. They've got some flavor my body really wants, but I'm not getting in eating those, what it is that my body thinks it's getting, which is maybe why you keep eating them. So there's a lot of interesting connections between flavor and our dietary choices 
but the science that we talk about in what your food ate is looking at how it is and why the flavors of whole natural foods really appear to correlate with how healthful they are now in terms of whether they're more nutritious there's a lot of arguments in the nutritional world about exactly what a nutrient is and i'm just going to stay out of those arguments for the moment and basically argue that things that promote that benefit human health are probably are the things we want in our food irrespective of how you classify it nutrients the statistics in terms of the increased nutritional value in the foods and in the soil is quite dramatic. It depends on which nutrients or vitamins that you're looking at, but it's in a region of averaging like 20% or more. Yeah, we've in a study that we did of the comparison of, say, the phytochemical density in regenerative versus conventional farms. We found an average consistently roughly 20% more phytochemicals in the regeneratively grown foods. And that was just a preliminary study. But the, the variability of mineral micronutrients and phytochemicals in human foods is actually a lot larger than people think. And it's complicated. It's not just farming practices that influence it. If you think about minerals, there's, well, what are the rocks the soils derive from? Back to my field of geology. That can matter and shape things as well. But food processing and how we grow our food are actually the two of the biggest effects that a consumer can have in mind when they go to a store. Because you're not likely to know or really care about what the rocks were underneath the farm that whatever you're eating happens to have been from. Yes. And on the point of omega-3s, if we wanted to balance our diet, obviously eat better. But I get these, I'm not sure if it's good or it's maybe a deteriorated when you have these bottles of omega-3 oils. Am I doing the right thing or is it wrong? There's sort of a mixed bag of results on studies of supplements, of whether eating things like omega-3s in a pill form would be comparable to eating a nice wild fish salmon filet. But what one can certainly argue is that meat and dairy products that are 100% grass-fed are going to be higher in omega-3s than ones that are conventionally grown. And by conventionally, I mean fed grains and feedlots. The science on that is actually pretty darn clear, and the differences are really big. I take some supplements. Are they helping with my health? Well, I think so. But the evidentiary basis for the supplement industry is thinner than I think most people would be comfortable with, but in part because there haven't been that many studies. And well, in any case, it is an issue. The, the point that Ann and I make in What Your Food Ate is that if people are really concerned about eating the most healthful food that they can, a plant-rich diet of whole foods grown in healthy soil is the way to go. And if you're someone who would choose to eat meat and dairy, that you do go for 100% grass-fed. That would be the recipe for the optimal support for human health. And the degree to which you diverge from that, it's going in the wrong direction. Wow. It's so informative. It's so inspiring. I think it makes many of us, if not, want to plant our own small gardens, at least to support a regenerative small farm or a local farm, or perhaps these regenerative agricultural farms that are on scale. It makes us think also about the labeling process of what is organic, because organic is often a measure of what they don't put in the soil, but it's not necessarily concerned with soil health. Right. I mean, the studies that we reviewed in What Your Food Ate that compared organic and conventional foods, a consistent finding across the board was that organic foods had less pesticides. Now, that shouldn't surprise anyone, but it's a fairly clear result. The other very clear result was that organic foods tend to have higher phytochemical contents. 
And I think that's probably a reflection of generally better soil health in organic systems. But at the same time, I've been on organic farms that have destroyed the soil by plowing too much. So if I was to recommend changes in agriculture, I would recommend that conventional farmers adopt more regenerative practices of minimizing their disturbance from tillage, minimizing their chemical use, if not foregoing it altogether. But if they're not going to do that, they should minimize it and grow a greater diversity of crops. And my advice for the organic farming world would be to try and minimize the physical disturbance from tillage, which is not necessarily to say give up tillage altogether if you, as a farmer, you think you need that to maintain your crop production. But I would certainly minimize it and I'd maximize the things you do to compensate for it in terms of compost and mulch and ways to bring up your soil organic matter so that if you till a little bit and you're dragging your soil organic matter down, if you have other practices that bring it back up, can you maintain it? In terms of the other consistent result we found in the review of organic versus conventional studies, and most of the studies that look at the effect of farming practices on what's in foods cast it that way, organic versus conventional. But the other one is that the conventional foods tend to always have more heavy metals. And oh, what was the other result? There's one other result that's escaped my mind for the moment, but you don't want heavy metals in your food and you don't want pesticides in your food. There's lots of controversy over how much is actually damaging to human health. Frankly, as an eater, I would prefer to have no pesticide and no heavy metals in my food. I agree. As you think about the future and you think about the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what were some important life lessons and teachers for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, in terms of important teachers and mentors for me, there's a high school teacher, Karen Antone, that I took biology from, I think it was my junior year of high school. And she's really probably why I'm a scientist. Individual people can have a big effect on the trajectory of your life, even though they don't realize it at the time. And I had a wonderful graduate mentor in graduate school who instilled with me the joy and pleasure in studying the natural world, but also in terms of as you learn about nature, to do it in a way that's evidence-based and is to figure out how it actually works and then figure out what it means for how we should live on the land, what we should do, or the personal choices we make, all that kind of stuff based on those kinds of connections. And I think that the last few decades have seen an explosion of information in terms of how our actions affect the natural world. And ranging from the climate to the soil to water, there's an awful lot of things that we've been doing that are degrading the life support systems of a planet that our descendants are going to depend on. We need quite radically to readdress many of those basic issues about how we live in the land, how we raise our food, and reframe the way we think about them in terms of how to pass on the world in better shape than we got it. We're at a point where we now have the knowledge to be able to try and think about doing that. In terms of the soil, we have the examples of regenerative farmers who've been very good at figuring out ways to farm in a way that uses less fossil fuel, that builds soil organic matter back up, that I think would actually produce healthier food for the human populace. And it can be difficult at times to think about how our individual choices can influence the shape of the future. And yet when you think about how the future gets shaped, it's through each one of our individual choices integrated over a lot of us. And so I would encourage people to think, what are the things that one can do in your own life that can actually leave the world better off in terms of your own consuming choices, your own food choices, but also think about how you might spend your time and how you might advocate for a better future for those who will come to follow us. Because I think, frankly, we really are this century in a place where 
the shape of humanity for centuries to come is going to be influenced by the choices we make over the next few decades. We've got 20, 30, 40 years probably to get off fossil fuels and to reshape agriculture in ways that make the climate and our soil sustainable. There's lots of things we can spend our time arguing about culturally and in terms of political wars and things, or uh, the wars is probably the wrong word to use at this point, in terms of politics, let alone wars. It's crazy for humanity to be distracting ourselves, if you pardon me using the word in this way, with conflict between people at a time when the whole future of humanity is really at stake in terms of what we do this century. And we've got some big problems ahead of us in terms of the nature of the climate and how we will feed ourselves going forward. But we have solutions in our grasp. If we employ them, if we think about them, if we support the politics that actually can implement them. So I would suggest that people looking forward, don't give in to despair. It's far too easy to look at the state of the world today and be convinced that it's going to hell in a handbasket. I've become much more of an optimist in terms of some issues. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and I may not live long enough to see it achieved. But in the big picture of things, none of us live all that long anyway. What really matters is the state of what we leave for those who will follow us and try and make the world a better place. Well, thank you for radical hope and actual plausible solutions that really go back to ancient solutions. So we just have to implement them. Thank you, David Montgomery, for helping us understand the fundamental role of soil, how it's entwined with plant, animal, and human life, and how by healing our land, we can reclaim our health and the health of the planet. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Yeah, Mia and Lynn, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to both of you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lynn Flores with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Lynn Flores. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenmar. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcasts and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.